We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, our host Kimberly Huey is interviewing architect Jocelyn Chu, who is a registered architect working at the City of Melbourne as the Director of City Design. Kim and Jocelyn discuss intersectionality in architecture. Intersectionality is a way of examining how different forms of oppression overlap and intersect to create complex experiences of discrimination. This can be by understanding how one person's gender, race, ability, sexuality, age, class or immigration status makes their experience different to someone else's. Kim and Jocelyn talk about how this is being considered in the architecture profession and the built environment more broadly. Let's jump in. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Hearing Architecture's fourth season of the podcast. And today I'm very, very excited because I've got Jocelyn Chu who will be joining me on this interview today. So firstly, welcome, Jocelyn. Really happy to have you here. Thanks, Kimberly. Really happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. As I may have mentioned in one of our previous interviews uh, with somebody else, basically this season, season four of Hearing Architecture, we've actually put out an ear eye for all our guests. And in this case, I believe you put forward the topic of intersectionality, which is fantastic because I feel like it's an, it's an ongoing term, but it's recently just finally have an identity for itself. So looking forward to talking about that today. Uh- I am too. It's something that's only really come onto my radar recently. And it's funny, I was talking to Daniel Moore, uh, either in the lead up or post the Institute of Architects International Women's Day breakfast panel. And it sort of came up in the planning for that panel discussion, where we sort of got a really vested interest in intersectionality at the City of Melbourne and I have a vested interest in it um, from a personal perspective. Um, And so when we were asked in preparation for the panel, what would we like to focus on? I did raise my hand and say I would really like to sort of talk about intersectionality this year, um, Mm -hmm. noting that it's actually really topical and we'll probably go into that a bit later. And also it's not something that in my experience, has been talked much about previously. Perhaps for the audience, and because I think it was International Women's Day Breakfast when you did that really cool presentation with the other guests on the panel. It was a very impressive panel. Uh, You did mention the term intersectionality, and I was quite curious about it. And so for the audience who are not there or present, could you please share with us how did this term come about or what does it mean to you or define it for the audience as well? Sure. Well, we have a number of things in city design. So first of all, I run a practice at the City of Melbourne called City Design and we're an interdisciplinary studio who does a whole range of things in design. So we work on urban strategies, we work on architectural designs for community pavilions, um, sporting pavilions, those sorts of things. We do industrial design and design street furniture for the city. We review city shaping projects, etc. And in 2020, the Victorian Gender Equality Act came into play. And that 
is the first piece of legislation is my understanding that requires a mandatory gender impact assessment. So this is something that we've mm. been, um, you know, having to sort of work through at the City of Melbourne. And what's really remarkable about this legislation is that it's the first legislation anywhere in the world to also require that work to be undertaken by applying an intersectional lens. So I think that's how it came up in my team. And in my team, we're very, very invested in understanding what equality means. Um, and because of that requirement, we've had to thankfully engage in this idea of what is intersectionality. So my understanding of intersectionality is that it's the multiple layers of a person's identity and lived experience, which adds to their um uh, I guess, their mental and emotional load in any um, situation, whether it's work or um, personal interaction. I think that's quite beautiful in its sense, because I feel like if we look back to five years ago, even six years ago, I think it was just at the beginning of the crux where people start to see things in different layers or having a different understanding, because I'd like to believe that back then, I feel like the rules and regulations and applying those was very black and white because it started off with, uh, I would use gender pay gap as one of the main examples, mm. and then you have gender equality at workplaces. But then when people start embracing their identity and being more forthright and forthcoming about it, that's when your level of empathy and understanding is deepened or at least expanded so then you get to understand the different cultures identities and different circumstances that makes up one person as well I think yeah. that's right and I think it's so important in a city like ours I believe for the first time Melbourne now has like the majority of residents in Melbourne are born overseas and not no longer born in Australia yeah. Um, it's a pretty clear-cut sort of difference, and I think that if we're going to design a city that works for everyone, we need to understand what the intersectionalities are and ensure that there are equal opportunities to, you know, essential um, services. So prior to the Act, are you able to share with us what were some of the requirements before this equal opportunity came about as well? In terms of um, like some so, of the policies that existed? Yeah, the policies that existed. And then so then we were able to have a bit of a comparison with what we have now as well. Um, I don't know, like pre-2020, what we had in place. I, I'm pretty sure since then we've introduced an inclusive Melbourne strategy or at around mm. that time. Yeah. Maybe that did precede the Act. Um, and that talks to our commitment internally and externally facing through inclusion. We've also got a gender equality action plan, which I believe did come out of the Gender Equity uh, Gender Equality Act. So that, yeah. I believe, was finalised around 2021. And that talks about some of the things that we will do as an organisation to improve gender equality. And that includes you know, ensuring that for all sorts of things, whether it's speaker panels or mm. um, tender assessments, that they have equal representation of men and women and gender diverse people on them. And that's certainly the case that we've run with, with our Melbourne Design Review Panel. So both in terms of selection, but also in terms of the way that we convene that panel. I think there are just a couple of other things. We're working through gender impact assessments at the moment. And then in terms of what else, I mean, we've had... Um, this is not 
necessarily about gender equality, but it does relate to intersectionality and equality and inclusion. We've had a reconciliation action plan for some time um, yes. and we, we now have a innovate reconciliation action plan which is the highest order of reconciliation action plan so there's a lot I think that the city has been doing in this space and then more recently we've also introduced a neighborhoods portal which acknowledges that the municipality is not just comprising of one group of people it actually comprises of quite distinct neighbourhoods. So I think we have nine, nine or ten neighbourhoods covering 14 suburbs. Oh, wow. And yeah, and the profiling of those neighbourhoods is taken from ABS data. So that's Australian Bureau of Statistics for anyone who's listening from outside of Australia. And that data demonstrates, for example, that the median age of residents in Docklands or Carlton is quite young. So I think late 20s compared to, say, the median age of residents in East Melbourne, which is, I believe, 41. Mm -hmm. um, and so the needs of those two cohorts is quite different. Um, the living situations or housing typologies of those neighbourhoods is quite different. So that helps us to sort of at a glance through existing data start yeah. to understand some of the intersectionalities at play. I was just going to say that the neighbourhoods portal that the City of Melbourne established also enables a sort of like neighbourhood specific interaction with those cohorts. So we'll sort of highlight which projects are happening in their neighbourhood, what projects are happening globally across the municipality and also inviting them to really have a local say on local issues um, as well as the broader programs. That's quite fascinating about the neighbourhoods and then you bring on the ABS in terms of the statistics because I feel like like-minded communities are drawn to each other obviously and then it mm -hmm. takes a few people crossing into different uh, avenues or thresholds I would say and then therefore there could be another beautiful type of catalysts happening and then you have different communities that forms in between these layers so then that adds to another level of Oh, I wouldn't say another level, but another type of lens in terms of looking at when it comes to design as well. I think that's a really apt observation. You're right. Like We are attracted to people like us because it's comfortable. You mm. don't have to explain everything. And I think that's where what is really exciting about intersectionality because for the first time, I think it liberates people who've, who've had to just deal with their, the, the burden of their multiple intersections. So, mm. you know, being in privileged environments like ours, where we're talking about investment in the built environment often, yeah. and speaking in educated circles, um, you know, for people who have not come from those sorts of backgrounds, if they've come from a um, low socioeconomic background, if they've come from a background that is non-English speaking, if they've come from a background which is where they've been marginalised for, for whatever reason or, or, or gone through significant harm, Hardship, then, you know, these are multiple layers of sort of mental load that they carry in a room where you just don't have that sense of comfort because you can't totally relax. You have to be switched on for the interaction that is at hand. How has that then impact in terms of, because I would like to believe that you would run engagements and workshops mm. with those communities. And I would like to understand, like, through the lens of intersectionality, how has that impacted in terms of your engagement or your design process? with them 
Well, engagement is undertaken in so many different ways at the city. We have the neighbourhoods portal, which is obviously a form of online engagement, yep. but it also shares meetings. So Future Melbourne Committee is the decision-making forum that occurs at council, and those meetings are held across the municipality in the different neighbourhoods so that it's clear that council is coming to them rather than everyone mm. having to come to council at Town Hall, which has traditionally been the case. And so we have, you know, we, we do a combination of letter drops, um, forums, so in-house, you know, in-house forums, um, Q&As, stakeholder engagement, which might be one-on-one -on -one conversations with, you know, specific stakeholders or groups or workshops or design workshops, etc. What else is there? Um, I think with the neighbourhoods portal is also enabling us to be more targeted. So each neighbourhood also has its own neighbourhood partner who is the dedicated face of that neighbourhood and their their job is to, you know, really get to know the residents, the business owners, the visitors to that neighbourhood to be really clear about their needs and that all gets communicated back to us as the designers. So I feel very fortunate in a way, like for the probably the first time in my professional career, I really feel like we're very engaged with a democracy through design. Yeah. I think it's quite different when you're a consultant, you know, working on a project for a client, including council. When you're in council, you have to live and breathe that consultation um, yes. with a diverse community. And then you might be aware of the Excellent City series, which is something we launched with the Design Excellence Advisory Committee at Council. Uh, we launched that in 2021 at M Pavilion. And that entire series is dedicated to connecting with communities and talking about design and fleshing out together what does design excellence mean for Melbourne and Melburnians mm. in a way that's different. So we try to avoid standard panel discussions. Um, we try to engage on topics that, yes, have a design lens and benefit, but don't necessarily speak to, we're not necessarily speaking to other designers. We had an event that was attended by lots of children um, <laughs> where they built <laughs> their vision for a future city. And that was such a beautiful event. And we had a lot of families turn up and, you know, you don't often have a lot of families turning up to community engagement. And a lot of the projects that I worked on in consulting, I don't think I ever saw, you know, multiple families turn up to an event and engage in a making exercise or a visioning exercise. So we're trying to sort of really blow open the door as to who is at the table and mm. how they're at the table and how they're enabled to, you know, to sort of participate in ways that are comfortable for them. In a way, I feel that... Because design, I think, often, so we, since we speak about privilege, I, think, I guess I feel a little bit more comfortable in saying often I feel like design can be seen as a level of privilege or a level of luxury that people yeah. can feel very intimidated by. And so I can partially understand when you hear families don't often turn up to these workshops is because their priorities are elsewhere. And so f to be able to have these initiatives like M Pavilion being so like placed in such an open space for people to be able to wander in and out and then not feel intimidated by that language of it all. I think that's quite beautiful because I feel like that's something, I guess, us as designers, 
I know every occupation have their own languages and it can unfortunately draw a line between different communities but to be able to break that lingo and then be able to have different initiatives and experiment I think that's what's very important is that experimentation that makes it so fun and so vibrant carrying all of that. I agree and so for me there's also I've come from a, a bit of a science background it's that was the first thing I studied at university and um, in science you often hear that innovation comes from sort of unexpected encounter or mm. unexpected agencies and um, I don't know I think there's a lot of truth in that for design as well let's not have conversations where we know what the outcome is let's not have conversations where there's a predetermined you know sort of direction like what don't we know what aren't we hearing at the table um, mm. I think that's the real potential that we have in in undertaking intersectional approach to design I'm just going to quickly do a bit of a time jump like in terms of we'll go back in time because this is something I would love to ask about is you said that you have a science background and I am aware that you used to work at Monash University in terms of planning the campuses I would like to believe that those experiences that you've taken would have impacted your design decisions now or how you approach the designs but are you able to share with us through the lens of intersectionality and now in where we are what has that experience taught you or what have you gained from that? Yeah, I was so fortunate. I was at Monash University for 10 years in the, the role of manager campus planning and design. And I was fortunate to work across, it, it sort of changed at times because the university contracted in the latter years, but, you know, initially six campuses and then contracted down to four campuses. And the ambition that we had to work with or the vision that we had to work with for those campuses was extraordinary. It was mm. about, you know, we've got this world-leading university, one of the top universities for medicine and research, and the remit to us was the built environment of those campuses don't reflect that academic achievement or vision. And the vision that Monash had at the time was to be a top 50 uh, mm -hmm. University of the world. It was, I think, 172 at the time that I joined. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and it actually got there. I think a year ago, it got into the top 50 in the world. Um, so that's extraordinary. As far as intersectionality goes, that term wasn't completely on my radar at the time, but I'd come from, you know, a sort of almost a decade of consulting before joining Monash. Oh. And what appealed to me about joining Monash University was that this cohort is very diverse. The mm -hmm. student, academic, professional and visitor cohort at Monash University is incredibly diverse. It's global, um, kind of like our city. And I think it was kind of the perfect training ground for my current role. It really gave me a lot of lessons in how to deliver on a master plan vision, mm. um, working with really diverse stakeholders. So everyone from academic deans to maintenance contractors, they all needed to be on board with the vision. And we did get there. And it was extraordinary what was achieved during that time, the amount of work that we rolled out and the impact that it had on the student and staff experience. You know, we went from having campuses that were you could almost see tumbleweeds blowing down them. Staff and students would turn up for classes and then leave as soon as they were 
you know, finished to then a place where, you know, it had an entire place activation program towards the end of my 10 years there because there was just so much to play with and people wanted to stay there. They wanted to experience more than just what was on offer inside the classroom, which is a, you know, really important part of universities meeting people who are different to yourself and really getting some inkling of what a universal perspective might offer on the world and world issues. Yeah, that's really nice because I never really think about, stereotypically speaking, you know, the campus experience. And so I'm from Monash as well. And so I was lucky that I got to witness how Caulfield campus itself has changed. And it's quite lovely to see from something that was quite concrete heavy and then slowly transitioned into this open fields and having the biophilic or bring back the nature aspects into the campus and it's really nice to see people start having these clusters or groups gathering as well and just see it prosper which is quite nice so I was very fortunate to be able to have a glimpse of that before departing the campus as well. Oh that's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't realise that uh, the turnover in terms of people attending class and leaving immediately was quite high actually that was quite surprising in itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Caulfield in particular, it was just such a hodgepodge of roads and grade level changes and it really didn't read like a campus at all where you would, you know, spend significant amounts of time. It felt very sort of disjointed and truncated. I think given that it is the centre for design and architecture as well. In terms of the, in the Monash family, it's where the art design and architecture school is. I think it's really important that you have environments that are inspiring, yeah. um, you know, for the next generation of practitioners. Yeah, that is true. And I guess it kind of speaks volumes at the end of the day, it kind of, how do I say it? destigmatizes or kind of removes that myth of design being a luxury because at the end of the day I think to have something aesthetically pleasing or comforting to people Mm. it's equally as important because when we're so focused on work to have a change of scenery is so important for our environment. Yeah and to ensure I think that that environment that you're in given that University can be a really stressful time for a lot of students. (laughs) It's a time when you're generally, you know, for a lot of people, you're sort of short on time. You've got high stressors related to deadlines, multiple deadlines. And also, you know, it can be an alienating and isolating time when you don't have a lot of time to socialise or spend Mm. with family or travel. I like to think that the environments that we put in place are also nurturing environments where you can see some daylight and be connected to landscape while you're studying potentially 10, 12 hours a day. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Then I think as you say that, okay, I'm jumping ahead again. (laughs) Bear with me on this. But thinking about how you said Monash provided a very effective training ground for you Mm. and now working for City of Melbourne, I'd like to ask what type of changes have you seen or have you slowly implemented uh, to have a positive impact for the community going forward. So I understand you've had these engagements already. So what are the next steps ahead or are there projects you're allowed to share with the public? As well? Oh, that's so interesting. Well, projects do take time to realise. So I might just qualify that I'm three and a bit years into this job <laughs> and we had that terrible interruption of 
COVID, which took up a significant amount of that time. And a lot of the work that we did during that time was about really fast tracking things that you know, opportunistic things that came out of those years in isolation. Mm. So the dedicated bike lanes project, that was a 10-year program, which we rolled into two years, essentially. Um, It was huge, but there was an opportunity to claim back the space while cars weren't on the road and to really establish uh, sustainable transport behaviours and Mm. also enable you know, safe cycling for multiple generations, not just commuter cyclists who are comfortable being on the road, but families travelling with children, particularly in a COVID and post-COVID environment where at the time that we were working on this stuff and fast-tracking it, Mm. we didn't know how long we would have to socially distance for. Mm. We didn't know when we would get the vaccines. We didn't know how people would feel about getting into a tram or train carriage again. Do you remember those days? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It was, there was a lot of unknowns. And so bicycle lanes, um, that was, you know, it's been a part of the city of Melbourne's transport strategy for some time. It made sense to roll those out in a concerted and consolidated way rather than waiting on them. Another thing that we did was outdoor dining parklets and that was about enabling, you know, traders who were really hard hit by COVID to, you know, be able to do takeaway or to enable socially socially distanced outdoor dining, those sorts of things. And that's opened up opportunities for how restaurants operate in Melbourne ongoing. A layer, like you've asked about, well, how has some of the consultation fed into this work? We are partnering more and more with First Nations designers um, and traditional owners. And I think that the city's had a really good history of this in recent years, but is being much more sort of concerted about it now, especially, you know, with our Reconciliation Action Plan, but also in supporting the voice to parliament um, and other things. So, I guess to give one example, because you've asked for a built example, but we worked with an Indigenous graphic designer to identify the little streets. And so the beautiful graphics that you see around the city on the little streets, you know, was done by him. And um, some of the projects that are coming up, we've got Southern Development Site at Queen Victoria Market. This is one of the most significant projects public space and public amenity projects to hit a capital city anywhere in the world it is a big big project and that has got build to rent housing in it it's got uh what else it's got food and beverage and community uses I can't say too much yet because it hasn't been (laughs) fully um, published and it's still in design of course and you know these things will only help to strengthen what is already one of Victoria's most frequented tourist attractions but also one of the most loved local destinations for residents so there's a lot underway there's yeah lots of different projects underway so on that southern site project we're foregrounding First Nations cultures and values. We've also working on a really significant First Nations artwork Mm. um, down at Dodd Street. And, yeah, and that sort of builds on the work that we've already undertaken on Southbank Boulevard. So I don't know, Kimberly, if I've answered your question or not. I think it's safe to say that now that we've got an inclusive Melbourne plan, now that we've got a gender equality action plan, we're really, really delving into the detail of gender impact assessments now and Mm. that will be 
the mechanism that will enable me to really, you know, articulate for you what have we identified and what have we implemented? I think it's not necessarily answering the question, but I think it's opening the conversation in terms of letting people know and be aware of the rapid changes that is happening, even though it seems slow, but I feel like it's that one drop in the ocean that will have a really lovely ripple effect. And I think the other thing that even though despite the topic of our conversation is, again, intersectionality, I feel like we can have a bingo on this. <laughs> How many times <laughs> we can say this? But I feel like that transcends into the civic generosity. So it's a term that I believe Christine Phillips and Amy Moore has shared with us when Imagine had this M Pavilion Forum about post-occupancy, I think there's something so beautiful in the way you speak about how it's giving back to the community and back then where communities have to make space for themselves or create their own space, it's now recognising that the City of Melbourne and other design managers are offering more spaces so that people can take up the space if they want to or uh, putting that invitation hoping that a hand would reach back and grab it so then therefore that everybody can have a say at least being heard and being listened to and then the next step is actioning those concerns and voices as well. I think that's right I think you know anything that we can do to attract diverse engagement with the built environment the design of the built environment can Mm. only be a really beneficial thing some of the things I've you know with our design excellence advisory committee we've got multiple design experts on there but then also multiple community members Um, one of our community's members Laura Brown she's a primary caregiver to a disabled child Mm. and um, she's articulated things in our discussions at M Pavilion about what it means to navigate the city um, Mm. with her child and the lack of freedoms that they enjoy compared to other people. So being able to find a a restroom with the right facilities, being able to use a bike lane that is sufficiently wide enough to, you know, she's got sort of a sidecar um, for her bicycle, those sorts of things. I think it had a lot of people thinking really deeply about the impact that they are having on people's lived experiences of the city when Mm. assumptions are being made Mm. about what a bike looks like even just something as basic as that what does a bike look like Mm. what does a bike rider look like and how wide does a bike lane need to be so I think they're you know the more of these stories that we hear the more it enables us to change the standards and I feel that it's the people also because I would like to believe your team is also being diversified and accommodating different people from different communities as well. And it's just that it's so nice to see how something that used to be just very either or in terms of making sure everybody's feeling equal has now completely expanded because there is no one definition, but it just keeps going forward as well. (laughs) What hope would you like to see like going forward in your designs and other decision makings what type of message you like to bring or like to share with others uh, who are interested in this? (laughs) A single message. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head at the start. I really think that we need to build compassion and empathy into design and design processes. Mm. And I think that that requires challenging current conventions around 
linear design processes mm. and also fast track timeframes. I think that those things don't help us to form meaningful relationships with community or they challenge the ability to form meaningful longitudinal relationships with community. You know, one thing that we've tried to do through the Excellent City series is to build relationships that are not just transactional, that are not just around the event or a project, Mm. you know, where we just invite feedback and that's it. I'm hoping that we are collecting a body of knowledge and building a body of knowledge and building relationships that will continue a long time into the future so we can walk hand in hand towards better outcomes. At a panel discussion that we held at the City of Melbourne last week for Melbourne Design Week, uh, there was one panellist and I've I've just, her, her name escapes my mind, but she summed up something that I've been thinking about for a long time beautifully. Um, and she's from Melbourne Uni. She said that gender equality is not the end game. It's a necessary requirement that we need in place for everyone to work together on solving the big problems of the world. So climate change, poverty, all of those things. And I thought that was such a beautiful way of looking at at, at mm. those things. So, you know, intersectionality is, of course, a part of that. I think that's a very powerful way to round off this recap or this conversation because, as we say, that times have changed and obviously culture, different, like whether it be technological culture or just mm. social culture, these things will always impact the way we see things and how we look back towards the past as well because that is how we can continually improve our society and the community as well. Can I add one more thing too? Yeah, like, please do. <laughs> I've, um, I've always deeply admired activists and activism is not something that I've ever, you know, been sort of brought up with. It's not something that my parents would ever have encouraged. Coming from the background where they've come from, I guess it was just logical to encourage us to, you know, go down an established route don't stick your neck out and get into trouble. Yeah. But I think activism is so important. And so I would encourage people, if you've got the bandwidth, and there's no judgment if you don't, but if you do have the bandwidth to engage in things like put her name on it, to engage in Parler's WikiD um, sessions, to engage in the work of a monument of one's own, to engage in, you know, to go and visit her place museum, to look up the Finding Her interactive map. All of these things that help to improve the visibility of women, of coloured women, of gender diverse persons in public space because the things that we immortalise in in bronze and concrete, they're all dominated by by men. It's a dialogue, you know, that privileges and celebrates only men at this stage. Mm -hmm. And if you want a stat, we've got, I think we've got 582 statues and only 10 of which are women. And so I, I attended the opening this morning of the Zelda de Prano sculpture at Victorian Trades Hall and heard Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister, speak, and it was extraordinary to listen to, yeah, really profound speeches about how hard 
women have had to fight for equality that is still yet to come in public space and all other areas of life. And I think it's also the portrayal of women. It's still an ongoing conversation. I think it's any portrayal of stereotypes are just different communities who are not men in general Mm. or within that group. There's still a lot of needing and shaping to do and so going back to as we say before making sure that there is space for those people to be able to define who they are or be able to share their experiences and listen stories that's still the first starting point and the next is to actually action by them and hopefully the listening and action will go along together absolutely Thank you for adding that, Polly. Oh, no worries. No worries. I thought, oh, no, I can't not cover that because it's so important. If we all get behind these things, then, you know, the voice of the collective um, helps to galvanise action. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the process of the lead up till now and also our discussion. So thanks. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our host, Kimberly Huey, and her guest, Jocelyn Chu, Registered Architect and Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne. Thank you so much for sharing your stories about intersectionality and how everyone can consider this in their architecture practice and the broader built environment. We can't wait to see more projects from you and your team in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Kimberly Huey and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.